Welcome to episode 70 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's July 16th. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss one of the main themes of this podcast for the last year and a half or so, the intersection of COVID, history, and policy. Our guest today is Ben Trump. Ben is a research social scientist at the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. He has a PhD from the University of Michigan in risk governance of emerging technologies and has published extensively on questions of risk, resilience, and policy. Right, and I'll mention just a few of Ben's publications, including the book, The Science and Practice of Resilience in 2019, and the article, Comparative, Collaborative, and Integrative Risk Governance for Emerging Technologies in 2018. Ben also put together a special issue of the journal Environmental Systems and Decisions that came out in June 2020 on systemic risk, resilience, and COVID-19, to which he wrote the introduction and the key article, Bouncing Forward, a Resilience Approach to Dealing with COVID-19 and Future Systemic Shocks. Now, I should add that you and I, Merle, also wrote an article for the same volume with the title, Lessons from the Past, Policies for the Future, that was our own quickly written foray into Ben's field that still holds up quite well, I must say. But anyway, hi, Ben, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys, it's great to be here. Great to see you all again. And um, yeah, I hope that I can give you an idea of kind of what my job is like with COVID from a day to day. And yeah, moving on from there. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And before we actually begin the interview, so Merle, Today's episode is really about a theme that this podcast has gradually moved forward, right? The influence or maybe not influence of past ideas and policymaking during COVID. In short, what is the role or should there even be a role for historians in COVID-related decisions or with regards to some future pandemic? Now, this ties to both our backgrounds and really non-academic interests in a sense, so perhaps more to your own background working in policy. Now, so far, I would say that historians really had little of a role to play during COVID in the United States and in Israel once it broke out, despite, at least in the United States, playing a role in planning for a pandemic and really the consistent push towards, quote unquote, increasing preparedness, which started a bit before the turn of the century. And in this context, Ben is someone we thought would be great to discuss these ideas with, since we've spent time talking about these topics with him through our joint membership in the CCHRI, the Climate Change and History Research Initiative, run from Princeton. Yeah, this is obviously a topic of interest for me, Lee, given my own previous mini-career before academia and politics. But also, as we said before, because I'm at a base level very tired of people complaining, often on Twitter, about humanities not having a role in COVID and then doing nothing to try to carve out a role for us, right? So I think there are probably two key ideas that we've come around to on this podcast. The first is the importance of building networks with people like Ben who work in different sectors so that when people do have good ideas that are worth bringing forward now and in the future, there are practical ways and avenues of doing this. And this is really the slow, hard work behind the scenes that I think takes a lot of time and probably will be more useful for things in the future than necessarily for COVID, perhaps. But the second is the importance of learning to, perhaps we might say, speak a different language than traditional academia. And this is something I think we're going to talk about today as well and how kind of key this is. 
But before we dive into the discussion with Ben, how's it going, Lee? Is COVID still spreading significantly via the Delta variant, or have you guys gotten things under control? No, we haven't. We haven't gotten things under control. I think I checked, and yesterday we had almost a thousand new cases of COVID, which is a significant amount considering that I'd say what, like a month or so ago, maybe two months ago, we had about 10 new cases per day. So there definitely is an increase. The government is re-implementing some regulations such as limiting indoor gatherings, especially the people who have been vaccinated. So far, the limitations are on large indoor gatherings. So like a hundred people and over, but the rumor on the street now is that we are eventually going to be heading towards another form of lockdown at some point in the not too distant future. I do like that you go around the streets listening for rumors, Lee. It seems to be one of your favorite pastimes these days. No, I actually go on taxis and I talk to the taxi driver and they tell me all the secrets of, of what's really going on in a country, in my country in this case. Fair enough. Out of curiosity, has there been a lot of work exploring what I assume is the underreported numbers of cases in the Orthodox communities? Not that I know of, but I haven't really looked into that too carefully. One thing that did happen that was kind of funny is that now, so in this particular increase in cases is mostly in the non-ultra-Orthodox communities. So one of the ultra-Orthodox communities put the sign that went kind of viral at asking all the non-Orthodox not to enter their neighborhoods because the non-Orthodox are sicker than the ultra-Orthodox community. Yeah, so I guess that was like their way of take thatting the rest of Israel's population. Yeah, so that's what's going on over here in Israel. And what about you, Merle? How are things going on in Annapolis? Yeah, so actually yesterday I organized all the succinct postdocs, we came together for the first time since COVID and had a drink or a snack or a meal or whatever near the harbor downtown. So that was kind of, I guess, a momentous occasion in which everyone was together for the first time actually ever because people have started as postdocs and have never actually been with the other postdocs during succinct. So that was interesting. I'm surprised everyone was in Annapolis. So we planned it basically at the one moment in which everyone but one person is in Annapolis before people start to splinter again. So people have taken other jobs and they're starting to leave in the next few weeks. And a few other people are leaving for longer periods of time again. So that's why it was this one week in which people were actually around in Annapolis. And how are you, Ben? Where are you? Presumably somewhere in the United States, not in the Virgin Islands, as my longstanding joke goes. I wish I was. No, so I'm based up uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. My facility is in Concord, Mass, but our team is scattered all around the country. So I've got postdocs and grad students in California and Washington and Texas, Mississippi and Michigan. So one of the things that we've had to get used to is not just teleworking, but teleworking across multiple time zones, which thankfully it's only three for now. And how are things over there with regards to COVID, so in your day-to-day -day life, do you walk around, go to the supermarket, the grocery store, whatever? I mean, what's the feeling on the street? I mean, if you don't take any taxis and talk to the taxi drivers. 
So I uh, haven't done the taxi driver interview process yet. So yeah, supermarkets, uh, walking around, basic social activities. So I, um, I got both of my jabs for Pfizer. Gosh, uh, it was late March. Um, so fully vaccinated individual also is my spouse. So with this, we've been following very closely the CDC guidelines. And of course, like within our workplace, there are other established guidelines about what type of activities are recommended or required in order to gain access to a facility and work within a facility with other coworkers. So overall, I would say that if you're looking back to where we were this time last year, so right now it's July 16th of 21, if you were to go back in time to June, July, August of 2020, Cases at the time in Massachusetts uh, were relatively low, but there was still a big concern that, you know, our testing program was still really rolling out. We weren't really able to survey quite well all different communities across not just our state, but our region in New England. And of course, there was a big concern of what happens if cases are going to come back, given the fact that pretty much everybody, aside from those that had recovered, we're still definitely susceptible to not just infection, but severe infection to SARS-CoV-2 or severe COVID-19. So overall, the attitude has had a massive change since the CDC announced that fully vaccinated individuals um, don't necessarily need to wear masks in many, but certainly not all social situations. And for the first couple of weeks, I would say there was some hesitancy to necessarily sort of, you know, quote, jump in the deep end of the pool, take your mask off, engage into all kinds of different social activities, but it picked up rather quickly. So you do have just to, you know, give you an idea of where we are with the social and sports community up here. I mean, particularly in Boston is a big sports city. You have a good amount of folks that I would say are still basically continuing their behavior as if nothing has changed, even though they've been vaccinated they're still self-isolating, maybe doing a little bit more walking outside and going into some stores, but still self-isolating, still wearing N95 masks. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I have you know a great many friends who the day that the CDC announced their mask order and then the state subsequently followed up with a variety of recommendations from the governor's office, you had folks going right away into you know, the TD Garden, let's see, basketball games, professional hockey, and very quickly became sellout crowds. So like you definitely is um, sort of a tale of two recoveries as we enter into this post-vaccination era. So with that background, maybe your work is kind of different from I think anyone we've had on this podcast before, since you work as a research social scientist for essentially the US Army. Could you tell us maybe what you do day to day aside from hanging out with people virtually in Mississippi or Texas or wherever? So the United States government has many different agencies that engage in different efforts of scientific research. I work in one of them, specifically the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. And so my day-to-day pre-COVID was looking into different research topics via the social sciences. My PhD is in public health. My undergrad's in poli-sci. My master's is in public policy is to look at how different challenges and major questions related to how people deal with uncertainty, core decision-making activities, and how from a top-down and bottom-up level, top-down being at a government level, bottom-up being at a community organizing level, how different groups come together to solve problems within an environment of an extreme uncertainty. Now, just prior to COVID, 
I did take on a fellowship that was three separate training sessions with the Johns Hopkins University Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity Initiative. I was fascinated by that work. Erdic was very generous in allowing me to go do this. It was two sessions in DC, one session in uh, Geneva, including a stint at the WHO. This was in fall of 2019 that it ended. So it was like very good timing to get that level of training. So I did have something of a background uh, related to COVID response, but overall for my day-to-day, it's a mixture of looking at these different research questions to figure out how can we best meet the needs of the military, of the nation, of our various communities, Uh, because within Army Corps, we have both a military and a civilian mission. And on our website is going to tell you all about that great stuff. So for me, you know, my customers, given the funding that we're given, my hope is to make things a little bit better to solve some of the social dilemmas, either from how emerging technologies are developed and commodified and entered in the marketplace, down to how do critical infrastructure systems reach some of our disenfranchised or disrupted communities, either from you know a general day-to-day or particularly uh, in the aftermath of a major disaster like a hurricane. You mentioned emerging technologies. So what exactly would that mean? Sure. So actually, my dissertation research was on comparative regulatory policies of synthetic biology. So, you know, outside of COVID, a lot of my interest is in how emerging technologies or those different scientific and technological applications that, you know, haven't really reached the core marketplace, but are maybe on the cusp, like five to 10 years away from potential major breakthroughs um, and how we currently do business and industry and different product development applications, everything from, you know, health to industry to textiles and, and everything in between. So, Within all of that, what my role is, uh, and I still conduct a lot of this for my day-to-day job outside of COVID response, is from a top-down perspective, how do we make sure that the existing risk assessment and regulatory paradigms uh, that have been constructed at a local, state, federal, and international level adequately govern the risks and benefits associated with the research of a technology to its commodification, to its end-of-life disposal, down to how do we best pursue and amplify the modernization process? So like, you know, for synthetic biology, for example, there's a variety of treatments and cures, d- different medical interventions that could be engaged in that could radically change uh, the human experience in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. But in the way, there is a major concern related to not just the risks, but also how do we deal with the societal concerns related to engaging in activities like genetic engineering and genetic modification. So we're trying to look at these piece by piece to make sure that we're communicating very well with the public, that we are conducting social research directly into major public concerns from a variety of organizations and action groups, and then hopefully publishing that transparently so that we can better improve outcomes for everybody in this space. We would like the technology to develop, but we want to do it safely and equitably. And how did you end up in this job? I mean, when did you join the army, really? Sure. So let me first start by saying, which I should have done at the beginning, which is while I am a federal government employee, I am here as a friend and as a fellow scientist. I'm in no way representing the United States government or any of its agencies in anything that I say. So everything that I've got here is my opinion and my opinion alone. So how did I come to this line of work? I actually started from an internship, like many of us. When I was an undergrad, I stuck around from Carnegie Mellon to U.S. Army, stuck around through my master's and then for my PhD and then through a postdoc, and now I'm here. Um, So that's the logistical path. But basically, why did I come to this line of work? I love science. I love the law. I love regulation. And I love 
trying to solve challenges related to how do people make sense of something extremely uncertain? How do we make decisions either as groups or as individuals uh, when you functionally have very little context by which to base risk and benefit on? So within this, I definitely went, you know, got my PhD, went through academia, but at the core, what really drove me to go into government is a lot of these questions require direct engagement with either government policymakers on one end or government scientists and developers on the other. And they very graciously made it possible for a social scientist to come on board and engage with a lot of these critical engineering topics. So for me, it was something of uh, this was a best fit to you know, serve my own personal scientific interest, to take action and, and help both people in you know, broader civil society as well as in the military, but also get you know, a direct bird's eye view uh, to see you know, how are these technologies uh, and activities actually emerging in real time and looking at some of the things that we've done uh, in some of our biotech labs, or some of the different machine learning and AI groups, and actually seeing that work has been absolutely fascinating. And I can't say enough good things about it. If we can turn now to kind of how your work has developed, I mean, you left us hanging there in the fall of 2019, and we all obviously know what came next in the spring of 2020. Do you still do the same biotech work, or have you shifted your work significantly to COVID? And if so, what kind of stuff do you work on now? So I still have my blue sky responsibilities, blue sky being what I am required to do by my mission and my job description. I still have that. Now, of course, at the onset of COVID, a lot of that changed. So uh, many projects that were longer term in nature, multiple years, were temporarily paused so that we could do a lot of this work. And I've tried to go a bit back to normal. But I guess let me go back to uh, the beginning. How did I get involved in what I'm doing? And how does that relate to not just, you know, my traditional biotech work, but with COVID? So I actually have the text messages to prove this. After leaving the WHO and seeing the pandemic response room and all the amazing work that they were doing, at the time it was for Ebola response, just seeing everything that was going on there, I was determined to continue to follow it. And it was about, you know, mid to late November when there was a lot of discussion at the WHO and others of a new unidentified disease that was of concern in Hubei province in Wuhan, China, my ears perked up. Now, around mid-January, I started texting, uh, you know, some friends and family members like, you know, like this disease that's out there, um, you know, it's unlikely that it's going to become something, but it's certainly not a zero probability. So, you know, definitely start taking some prudent measures to prepare yourself to what might be a rather eventful change <laughs> in the world. So I have proof of that in January. So, and again, as February rolled on and we started to see SARS-CoV-2 or severe COVID-19 cases pop up, you know, from China and then into Italy, particularly in Lombardy, um, and then elsewhere in France. I mean, our team's work very much is international in nature, so we have to be keeping up with a lot of ongoing trends. Once we saw the cases begin to spread, it was apparent that, you know, we were very likely entering into something that wasn't just a possible severe situation, it was a severe situation, uh, even though we really didn't understand the nature of the virus at the time. So what we did, February became March, and then a lot of, not all, but most government employees were sent on maximum telework. I went to my boss, who also is a PhD in public health, and spoke with him and I said, you know, Igor, I do not want to sit at home and do nothing in this pandemic. I need to get involved. Like if it's carrying water, I don't care what it is. We have to do something. 
Well, so it was a poor choice of words because I'm still sitting at home. But what came of that conversation is that we reached out and it turns out that there was uh, major calls for assistance, particularly in the public health sector, from FEMA, from the military, from various others. And we actually did two different lines of work. So on the military for USACE, there was a major urgent need to understand, and this is getting into the second half of March 2020, there was a major need to understand how the pandemic might spread um, in remote and austere Pacific Island environments. So the United States has territories in Guam, the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, and others, um, as well as the state of Hawaii and the state of Alaska. So within this, particularly looking at Guam, which did have uh, very early cases um, due to flight connections with East Asia, there was a concern about a lack of understanding about how COVID might spread within that community, as well as how the unique population health concerns within that community might then lead into more or less severe uh, presentations of disease. Uh, so in the Pacific Islands, for example, there tends to be an overrepresentation of chronic health conditions like diabetes, like hypertension and heart disease and others that we now know are very severe chronic health conditions that leave someone more likely to experience severe COVID-19. So within this, we developed a epidemiological model using something called SEER, Susceptible, Exposed, Infected, Recovered, which is a series of differential equations that when you solve them, you can begin to figure out using very basic parameters of the disease, because again, there's still a lot we didn't know, a lot we didn't know in March of 2020, but we tried to figure out what might happen, how the disease might spread, and how the unique population health concerns might lead to severe hospitalization, as well as institutionally, what are the ICUs and hospital beds that were available? Um, so we published that report. Uh, we sent it out to uh, military leadership. They forwarded it to the Guamanian governor's office, and they were able to take very quick action from that. And we did subsequent studies in CNMI, the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, as well as American Samoa, and by extension, Hawaii and Alaska. Very quickly on the civil side of things, while that was going on, we were requested to be assigned to an emergency detail which is government speak to, you're going to temporarily change your job title, as well as your daily reports, like who you're responding to. Uh, so I still have my military mission, but now all of a sudden I had a civil mission working with FEMA, which is, for those that are not in the United States, is the primary federal organization that deals with disaster response and emergency response efforts in concert with HHS ASPR, which is the Office of the Assistant Secretary for um, uh, Preparedness and Response, which deals with public health emergency response efforts. Uh, so we were assigned to FEMA Region 1, which is the six New England states. And within that, I was given a job title, something like strategic planner. Uh, and our job was, you know, given your public health experience, given your engineering experience, and what your team can do, just start trying to solve basic questions that we had. So first is, you know, epidemiological modeling. What type of cases are we going to see, given the fact that Massachusetts had a spike in cases very early. Boston was very much affected in that initial wave, um, including many, many, many severe hospitalizations. So from that, we worked with FEMA and ASPR. Again, wonderful people to work with. I can't, I, I really can't say enough good things about them. They work tirelessly to this day. We work with them to figure out, given epidemiological forecasts, we were able to develop our SEER model into something that was updated daily from our, the broader USACE ERDIC team. We were able to get that model put on the CDC ensemble forecast um, that was included with national forecast of cases. 
Uh, and then directly for region one, we use tools like SEER and many others to figure out, given the fact that we have very few ventilators, where do the ventilators go in our region? Given the fact that we have very limited PPE, you know, masks, NIRAL gloves, gowns, face shields that our nurses and physicians and respiratory technicians need, where do they go? How do we deal with emergency and crisis response type of an environment where we have extreme resource scarcity? And then within all of that, this sort of snowballed into a variety of other different tools and projects that, you know, our detail initially was for two weeks and then four weeks and then four weeks became three months and then three months became nine. And then here we are to this day, still providing that kind of assistance on a very different battery of topics related to not just the public health response, but also anticipating uh, some of the deficiencies or challenges that society is going to have. Everything from understanding food security. There was a major concern that unemployed Americans that were not able to access unemployment benefits would then very quickly run into food shortages. And we work very closely with, again, amazing group of folks that help run regional um, emergency response and food security, a lot of you know food banks and things like that in the region, down to looking at um, vaccine hesitancy as well as vaccine equity. One of the main things we look at right now is you know, where are some folks that may be disenfranchised that have very limited access uh, to vaccination, either because maybe they have you know, limited availability to transport, they can't take off time of work, they don't have enough information. How do we identify these folks, reach out to them, make sure that they have the resources that they need, and to make sure that everybody that wants a vaccine in this country can get one? Right. So that's actually a lot of content. And listening to the story you told, Maybe the first question that came to my mind is, so it seems very clear that you, your team, and I'm assuming other teams as well, in different branches of the United States government, were thinking about this seriously very early on. And this is maybe not the impression I received, at least, from the media. And remember that I'm also not based in the United States, so I might not have received the correct message, so to speak. But... In this context, that there are so many people working, even on subjects that maybe do not seem like core subjects, maybe might be a bit more peripheral, like those Pacific Islands, I mean, compared to, let's say, the lower 48 states. So there were so many people thinking about how to solve this and how to respond to the uncertainty and problems and, and spread of the virus and so on. And still, if you take everything holistically and you look in retrospect, again, as someone who's not an American and not in the United States, it seems that in total, the response has not been positive, to put it mildly. So how would you explain that? And what could have been done better? Sure. And again, I can only speak from my own opinion, not representing the government in any function in this podcast. So let me get to your first point. What I can tell you is, you know, across the federal family, as well as every state government and many, many, many municipal governments, there was a lot of people that were working the COVID question about core response issues. Again, how do we distribute PPE? How do we acquire new PPE? How do we get our supply chains back in order? How do we distribute ventilators? How do we develop best practices of how to best care for people that are very ill? Unfortunately, how do we... and for the United States and the world. Unfortunately, um, how do we develop best practices to respectfully but also very safely treat human remains? These are all questions in every individual unit had a great many very dedicated professionals 
that were engaged very early in the response process. The major question that we faced, and again, a very small part of that, what we faced was how do we deal with the extreme uncertainty uh, that we saw as COVID was spreading? Like from a modeling perspective, one of the core items that anybody asks for, and it's the, usually the only one that Hollywood really hones in on in any pandemic movie is what's the R not? You know, what's the reproductive rate of the virus? What's the R not? And I, you know, I've seen all the time they focus on this one. And there was some early guidance, but it was very broad. And so we had to, I mean, educated guess, but we had to engage in a variety of experiments to see what's our best case scenario, worst case scenario, and in between. And the level of uncertainty, including, you know, who are our high-risk people? What are the intermediate and long-term health effects? How long does it take for someone who's infected with severe COVID-19 to recover? What's the rate of asymptomatic infection? How do we best protect some of our healthcare workers? These were all questions that had to be developed on the fly. So I think that there was, what, what you were seeing in January, February, March, April are very large institutions that are learning on the fly. Um, they are actively dealing with a crisis where many thousands of people are getting very sick and dying. And we were dealing with the uncertainty as best as we could and providing as much help as we could to our healthcare providers, which again, those guys, big heroes, do not get enough attention. And I think we can all agree on that one. We tried to give the best support that we could give, keep supplies flowing in, keep our people safe, keep our healthcare workers safe, best serve the, the population. But at the same time, also treat this as a scientific endeavor. We need to know more about this virus to better treat it. And as we got into the summer of 2020 and into the fall, we did understand a bit more. We were better able to predict and monitor conditions. We're better able to understand what are some risk factors. And thankfully, eventually, how do we develop very effective vaccines that can be rolled out to scale at infrastructural scale to hundreds of millions of people in the matter of months? So that's how I would respond to that. So maybe to follow up on that, I guess I'm curious about the historical perspectives, obviously, given the focus of the podcast. You know, one thing that has been talked about is that there were pandemic plans put in place, most of it based on the 1918 influenza pandemic, famously, which were implemented to some extent in some countries around the world, but obviously not to an extent, the United States. And it sounds like we then had to learn things much more on the fly. Now, some of that is because, you know, even though there are things that are comparatively similar, they're very different diseases, how they spread, who they affect, all these things are obviously completely different. Levels of technology are different. All these things are obviously quite different. But in terms of the basic response pre-vaccine, the knowledge base historically was there. So did you guys interact with this at all? Was this something that was known in policy circles? How did this kind of function during the pandemic? It was the first thing that we turned to, at least on our team. The reason being is, and this goes back to my job as a social scientist. We have a virus. The virus has certain properties. Again, the R not rate, it's associated outcomes, and it does need to be studied. But within pandemic response, it's not just the virus that needs to be understood, but it's how people deal with the direct implications of that, as well as the contagion of fear and the perception of risk that they are engaging with. So honestly, from my day-to-day -day perspective in COVID, 
half of my day is consumed by reading reports, books, everything. Some of the things that we turned to right away were what was the social history and lived memory of everything from the plague of Justinian, the Black Death, of course, Spanish flu. Spanish flu is everywhere. I mean, actually, in uh, a lot of our briefings that we gave to many different states and many other federal agencies, as well as some of our international partners that we collaborate with, you know, on our government slide decks, we always have an initial graphic. And I often, at the encouragement of some of my higher ups, put the covers of books related to Black Plague, Spanish flu. And you would be amazed at the amount of interest that you see there. So what did this provide us and why did we do that? Again, we needed to understand the virus and we worked very hard on that with our epidemiologists and biologists and other public health folks. But importantly, as the pandemic began to roll out and you saw mass restrictions and social behavior, you saw a variety of responses to that, a variety of concerns and that then trickled into the broader marketplace and the global economy. We needed to understand how people deal with risk. And we drew a great many narratives from the historical literature to better understand how things are going to change over time. You know, again, the last thing I'll say about this is the initial rollout in the Western world of SARS-CoV-2 was late winter, early spring of 2020. And the first thing that I got on the phone with my PhD advisor, I said, this seems eerily, eerily similar to what happened with Spanish flu. 1918, 1919. You have an initial, you know, noticeable but not crippling wave of cases, late winter, early spring, 1918, that then is followed on by a lull, that then you have major super spreader events that contribute to really disastrous spread of disease getting into late fall, early winter, 1918 to 1919, and then follow on smaller but very significant, is still significant in terms of, of the cost of human health waves after that. And we use that to try and guide, not just look at the data, but also an interpretation of the range of scenarios of where we think society might go if certain scenarios of disease spread may continue. Great. So you mentioned that some of your works and even some of the briefings you've held, you have used academic work and not just any academic work, but historical research even about the Justinianic plague and the Black Death and all these pre-modern pandemics that are the bread and butter of Merle and myself, but probably not most other people around this world. Did you also speak to historians? Did you also speak to quote-unquote experts on these, or did you just use the products of their research, so the stuff they wrote? That's actually why we came to this group initially. That's why I was very excited to continue to participate in things like uh, the groups that John Halden was putting together and uh, Miguel Centeno. So yeah, we had a great many conversations and then we've actually uh, brought on some postdocs as a result of that. So the sh short answer is yes. A slightly extended answer is in doing this, some of the first briefings that we began to use, particularly at the end of our presentations, turning back to history to understand what's going on, our briefing set as early as you know the first week of April of 2020 was what does history tell us about the second wave of a major pandemic? Uh, and the answer is there really hasn't been a major pandemic that's only had one wave. If you have something that reaches critical mass at this level, it does have a follow-on and that follow-on, especially if it's timed poorly at the onset of your hemispheric winter, can lead to 
very, very severe long-term health conditions. And there is a variety of social and economic responses related to that. So that's about as early as we were getting there. Okay. And another question, which is related. So you did bring the academic side into the discussion and the briefings and, and policy making or thinking about policy planning and so on. Did you also use popular cultures such as movies, for example? So movies such as Contagion? I mean, on one hand, obviously they're less academic, maybe they're less real in one sense, but maybe in another sense, they are more real, right? Because more people watch these films and kind of think about these realities based on, again, Contagion as an example. I would be a liar if uh, I said anything other than, yeah, I did watch those films uh, at, at the very onset of COVID, especially, uh, you know, right before I took a lot of these roles, definitely Contagion, Outbreak, uh, the Dustin Hoffman movie. That I, So I, I grew up in Northern Virginia. So, you know, rest in Ebola is something that uh, I was fascinated with as a kid. So we definitely did uh, primarily to be looking at, you know, what is the perspective on not how institutions work or how a virus spreads because Hollywood gets that terribly wrong, but more about what is the range of human responses that we may not be capturing given the fact that uh, we're in our own silo of research and information. So uh, we did pull from that perspective. For everything else, again, we work very closely with experts at WHO, the CDC, FEMA, HHS, ASPR, every state health department that we could to get perspectives on the virus. So that's a very interesting way in which you personally and broader institutions used more popular media, which is something we've talked about with a number of people on this podcast. But I'm also curious, do you see ways that we can develop these avenues of using academic historical research for future planning as well? Is this something that, you know, now that we've established these connections, how would we institutionalize them as it were moving forward? It's definitely a many million dollar question. There is no single silver bullet answer, but where I would start is there are going to be many after action reviews, at least in the United States at local, state, federal level about what happened. I don't think we're quite there yet because the story is still waiting to play out a bit more, but eventually this is going to happen. It is critical to continue the benefits that historians can offer crisis response to be involved in that after action discussion and the sense making effort as a result of that. The other side, uh, and we actually held a session at one of Dr. Halden's meetings uh, where we brought in a few folks from the OECD, from FEMA, from Army Corps of Engineers, again, fascinated with the work, extremely appreciative of the help, love history. The number one piece of advice that they all gave is it would be great if there was a publication avenue for historians that is dedicated to policymakers that may not have the same level of training that the policymaker does. Have you followed up on that? And is there a way that, you know, that's being thought through rather than just as a, oh, that would be nice kind of thought? I have not yet because my COVID work continues, but what I would say is it's something that if it were to be picked up would have quite a bit of legs, at least at a national level. And the only other advice I would give on that would be don't make it specific to a pandemic. Of course, pandemic response is something we have a wealth of knowledge to learn from right now, 
And we need historians to make sense of that, not just on what did American society or global society experience over the past two years, but equally, what was relatively similar about what happened over within our experience with COVID, what was similar to 1918, 1919, to the mid-14th century, to the mid-6th century, uh, and various other instances of plague, what is the same about the human response? And what is uniquely different, either because of technology or the speed of communication or elsewise? But if that publication could be done something like, you know, with national academies or something like that, written for general emergencies and general crisis response, and written for, again, a lay audience less interested in academic citations and more about just conversational sense-making and lessons, you would have a pretty robust leadership based on folks that are starving uh, for those approachable narratives that I've met right now. Maybe to play devil's advocate here for a moment, isn't this also risky in a sense? I mean, to assume that present-day society is somehow analogous to, let's say, medieval or ancient or early modern or whatever, even early 20th century society, when there is so much that's different, right? I and mean, the differences are easy to count, right? So communications, trade, and so on, it's like completely different. So wouldn't us trying to, quote unquote, learn from the past also entail some pretty substantial risks itself? Absolutely. And I would also add the other major risk associated with trying to do this kind of effort is who gets to write the history and figure out the lessons of what goes on and how we connect with the past. There's a great many problems. And frankly, this is why I haven't solved the question, because I'm not a trained historian and I wouldn't want to tread on anyone's shoes there. But at the same time, if a well-qualified group doesn't try to begin that sense-making effort, just to begin with the question of, are there any connections? Because if the answer is no, which I, I don't believe that that's true based on what I've seen and what we have learned in the process of going through this pandemic, but even if the connections are very few, that's still something extremely valuable to a policymaker. Like how does something like rapid communication make a big difference or widespread education or the scientific method? And you know, conversely, how does something like extremely rapid transit, the fact that you know, within a matter of 24 hours, you can fly to pretty much anywhere in the world, how does that change things? These are all questions that we can speculate on. And ultimately, if a well-qualified, well-funded effort doesn't do this themselves, someone who is less qualified, less well-funded, uh, and less capable of giving an accurate scientific answer is going to try to do so. Yeah, I mean, the other issue to throw one more in there, although, you know, I would have my own ideas on how to resolve this. And to an extent, Lee and I have written about this, is how do you convey that people thought differently? Not just that they didn't have, say, an idea like they did in 1918, they didn't know about a virus, right? But that how they thought about economics was very different, right? The fact that our entire debate, basically during COVID was framed either essentially economics versus public health in the United States. And that's not a framework that people 100 years ago, let alone 700 years ago, even had. I would definitely say that you're, you're not going to get a perfect apples to apples, like an identical set of scenarios arose in social response um, to a major crisis. But you can get at some similar core themes. And that's what uh, we gained an awful lot of insight from, like, you know, from Spanish influenza. 
lot of discussion about how, again, you had that early wave of cases. Folks knew that there was something rather concerning at play with the initial onset of the influenza virus, but then it just sort of went away because it went through that typical wave cycle of cases that is pretty easy to model through different epidemiological approaches. Even then, they were able to track the caseloads, and then it went away, or at least it was at a very low level for a while. And then a variant emerged, much like what we're going through now. And that variant had a variety of, well, there are multiple variants, but uh, several of them uh, had rather concerning impacts upon human health. And once it arose again, or started to spread again, that variant, it was at a point where people were beginning to engage in social behaviors saying that, you know, there's any major risk of contagion is probably gone. We've gone through it. But there's also this big, you know, social jubilation that, you know, this terrible war that we had gone through and the Great War was hopefully wrapping up. And then you had a lot of, you know, major celebrations and national holidays and parades that you had many tens of thousands of people in the streets celebrating. So that kind of response to understand how, you know, people's guards are let down was something that we were able to speak very early on, as early as April and May of 2020, that the social conditions are setting up for a major second wave. I mean, conversely, there are trying to make sense of everything from, you know, why certain people tend to do very well or even thrive economically in very challenging conditions, whereas many others fall into you know, very challenging elements of you know, physical and mental despair. Like one of the studies that just came out over the past two weeks is that opioid and fentanyl use in the country spiked dramatically in 2020. Deaths of despair were way, way up. And again, it's something that you're putting people through a traumatic global existential crisis by which we do have a theoretical endpoint, but trying to navigate to that endpoint is very difficult. And so where does history come in with all of this? No, there's not going to be a perfect apples to apples comparison. But the stories that we gain about how certain groups succeeded or failed in getting to their own endpoints and trying to do better, it gives the general public, as well as our senior policymakers that are responsible for a duty of care of this pandemic, it gives them an expectation of what came before and what they might experience. And then, of course, as a caveat, we always need to account for what might be different. We're still human beings. We're still driven by, you know, different requirements for uh, security, food, long-term safety to ourselves and our families. So looking at those similarities and differences and just generating generalized narratives is something that can help steer response very early on. Now, would you say that this is a more or less consensus view? So... Would you say that most people with whom you've conversed would have the same take about history as being a source of information or a source of examples of how things may or may have occurred? Or did you get some pushback from certain individuals who were much more against this position? I never saw outright pushback. Trying to argue that there's a consensus view on much of anything is risky. What I would say, so I never got hard pushback. There were times when There were some folks that maybe, you know, are less aware of different historical elements. And of course, the further back you go in time, the less aware they become. So we did have some of that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I had some folks in my leadership chain, again, very cool heads under pressure. That's one of the big lessons that we learned is that the success of emergency response depends, you know, not just on how well you can do science, 
how well can you work your way out of a problem, but how can you keep a cool head in doing that? Um, and I had a supervisor, definitely fits that bill and, and led a lot of our work in that regard. By you know the end of the first wave of COVID, he went to being someone who is you know absorbing information. I would talk with him every day, many times a day, 11 p.m., 12, 12 a.m. at night, talking about this stuff, going over different historical examples, trading book recommendations in our free hours. By the end of his experience, and again, he was very involved for half a year or more, both in U.S. response as well as international response from a military perspective, he would start all of his presentations quoting some of these historical works that he would work with. So like, again, what I don't want to represent is that there's this major institutional change that all of a sudden, everybody that's doing science in U.S. government is now a historian or even open to that approach. But you certainly have a much broader audience now than you did before, and they may not realize it. I think the big barrier to entry is they don't have the training that a historian does. So they don't necessarily know what to read, how to get a diversity of perspectives, or at least you know which diverse perspectives should they be seeking out to get a holistic picture of things. And simultaneously, you know, how to avoid the issue of hubris, of trying to overgeneralize on or overfit one's response on a specific issue. And there is a lot of concern about that, and that's why we move very carefully in looking at these historical narratives. I don't want to overrepresent that point, but there is a much bigger window that if we can start talking in a more generalizable, approachable, layman's way to talk about emergency response and how different societies and different individuals overcame very strenuous and very life-threatening situations, there's a lot of people that would listen to these types of talks. So if I can ask you an unfair question, as I often do on the podcast at the end, maybe as we leave one phase of COVID, right, I think we're entering a post, most people who want to get vaccinated or vaccinated phase. So we're in something else, what that will be called, we'll leave up to historians in 20 years. What do you see your role moving forward and also any role for historians and academics as well, to leave it as an open-ended question in this next phase? Sure. That's a tough one, mainly because we're at a point where we're not necessarily on a path-dependent outcome, or at least we don't need to be. The difference between July of 21 versus July of 20 is we have not just one, but multiple highly efficacious, safe, working vaccines that are built to industrial scale. Uh, it's breathtaking to watch uh, these systems at play. If vaccination numbers continue with enough good luck and hoping that we don't have another follow-on variant after Delta, it's very possible that we could be going to the tail end of this pandemic. But if vaccination rates fall short of herd immunity targets and other recommended goals based on where we're estimating and calculating the reproductive rate of the virus to be, we could certainly be in for another round, probably not of what we saw last winter, but certainly some less than comfortable conditions, very large array of outcomes. So the short answer is for what I'm going to be doing. My current assignment working with an assisting FEMA is through the end of September. If they extend us again, I will stay until the bitter end, until whenever they decide that they don't want me or don't need me anymore. And everyone else on our team is the same way. From the military perspective, you know, same issue. We're still looking at, you know, different trends related to COVID transmission on the Northeast seaboard for 
a few different USACE groups, as well as transmission and vaccine trends and what's going on with the Delta variant in Europe and Africa, broadly speaking, at a continental level. So as long as this information is wanted uh, and there's someone to listen, my job is to serve the public as best as I can as a scientist and as a, a public servant. So I'll continue with that. But where can historians fit in? There is a major, major unknown that every institution, national and international, is grappling with right now, which is what does the post-pandemic world look like? What does it look like? And you have, again, a wide array of different types of answers. And again, you have to ask yourself the question of, will COVID become an endemic disease in the short, medium, or long term? It is going to be something that is very important as we go through Northern Hemisphere's winter in 21. Is there going to be another wave? And is it going to be enough to keep COVID as an endemic disease that we have to live with moving forward? Jury's out on that one. But for historians, it's what's going to happen when you do release people from conditions of you know, relative lockdown? Or simultaneously, what happens if you ask people that have been released from these restrictions to go back to them? What if we were to say, you know, we need people to engage in strong isolation and social distancing and masking again? How is the economy going to change? How is technology going to innovate? Are we going to start to see a lot more automation? Are we going to start to see major demands and change of labor codes, an increase of materialism and luxury goods? There are everything from, you know, very discrete questions like, how do we deal with supply chain shortages, like what's going on with semiconductors, down to very broad questions of what are the sets of values that people are going to be appreciating much more of now, and what types of incentives or values that were very prominent pre-COVID are going to be tossed to the wayside. That all leads to major policy questions that remain unresolved, heatedly debated, and it is something that a historian very much should be contributing to, in my opinion. So I guess that on this slightly more positive note, I guess if, if we want to take it that way, slightly more optimistic, we can conclude the interview. So I'd like to thank you, Ben, for your time coming on the podcast and sharing some of your experience, some of your perspective with us. Definitely not an experience or perspective that we've heard on this podcast before, or I personally in my personal life. So again, thanks so much. It's been great. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So I really enjoyed that conversation with Ben just now. And it actually really neatly aligns, dovetails, whatever phrase you want to use, with some of our conversations we had. And the one in particular, I'm thinking of the one with AJ Herman, who works in the mayor's office of Kansas City, right? Which when we think about this pandemic from a media or really public discourse, or if you prefer Lee, the taxi driver on the street point of view, there's definitely one message. And then when you actually talk to the people who are involved in planning and the policy and all the complicated stuff that's really happening behind the scenes, I think you understand, or at least I do through this podcast, how much more complex and really difficult all of these questions are. Yeah, I think it came across very clearly that the message that most of us, I guess, received through different media outlets, mostly corporate media, for lack of a better term, maybe some social media as well, was only a very, very small 
part of what was going on behind the scenes. And people like Ben, I mean, just from the stories that he told us, right? He observed the same things happening while much closer to the areas where decisions were made. And he obviously had much more information at his disposal. I guess that plays to both sides, right? I mean, on one hand, he has more to think about. He knows more and so on. But on the other hand, I guess it's also very frustrating when you know things that just don't come out in the media to the general public. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the nature of politics and government. I mean, having done that myself, I've been involved in some different but similar types of conversations that, you know, one thing was said, but in reality, it was completely different in terms of what was actually happening. But it's the way in which we frame narratives. But the other thing I thought was actually quite interesting, you know, when we were chatting with him about the fact that he was watching movies early on. So, you know, now we know that the movies went relatively high up in policy circles. So that's good to know. But also how much perceptions of risk and fear were central and in some ways unplannable about how people responded, right? That people were going to think certain ways regardless of maybe all the information that was necessarily given to them. I mean, one thing you probably would like to hear, Merle, is that as a humanist, is that despite all the scientific advancements and all the AI, artificial intelligence that we have, all these like super high-tech tools and so on, it still is extremely difficult to figure out how large groups of people would respond. And I think that's where Ben was coming from at the beginning of the interview, I think. Yeah, and I think it goes to show why he and others spent so much time thinking with historical examples, right? Because at the end of the day, the number of variables, as you know, from having done disease outbreak modeling is huge. I mean, it's almost uncountable, essentially. And even if you somehow could account for all of them or the most important ones, people are still going to do what people want to do, right? Which has a really difficult way of any model making sense of that. I mean, this reminds me again of the foundation, the, the series. It's just a place where that kind of modeling does work. And this sci-fi, I don't know how far away in the future that is off the top of my head. But that's an ideal that seems impossible to attain in our times, at least. And maybe that is a good argument for why humanistic thinking is still important. I mean, one other point that Ben mentioned, I mean, he noted that he felt he was working in a silo, right? So he was simply looking for perspectives. And I actually value that a lot. I mean, trying to actively trying to avoid groupthink is not something that I see as, as frequently as I would like, both within academia, within policy and so on. So it's hard to do, but I'm really happy he did it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I think is interesting is one way he did avoid doing that and framing, you know, a lot of his presentations, he said, was through history, media, humanities and arts thinking, right? That that was what really grabbed people's attention, as we've long said on this podcast, the stories are what people pay attention to and think about, not necessarily the numbers. So in that sense, you know, we might 
talk about the decline of the humanities and all these things in general academic circles, but in reality, people are still using them very strongly to make sense of their world. Yeah, no, that's, that's more or less it, I think. And it also struck me, I mean, as a comparative example, I mean, Ben mentioned that people were generally positive towards his use of history of his historical examples, at least based on his experience. And I would say that here in Israel, that is decision makers, probably, but also other areas. So, so the media and so on have generally been considerably less interested in what history has to, to teach, quote unquote. And I was thinking during the interview why this might be the case. And one of the answers I came up with is really the, the liberal arts kind of education in the United States, which is prevalent there, at least in certain circles, and is much more rare here in Israel. Well, I'm sure there's some literature on that, Leah, that you know you could read and tell us all about. Maybe we'll have someone on from the Israeli government next to uh, give us some insight. Yeah, I can try to find someone. Not sure I can, but we'll see. Yeah, one last thing is the article, which you probably remember we wrote for Ben's publication, that we wrote very quickly, from what I recall, in like two or three weeks, me, you, and, and John Halden. Yep. I did, you know, use some of these historical case studies, because I think they warranted it, to discuss points of, you know, what I think have pressing policy implications, which is that groups with the least, that is to say, whether that's based on class, gender, race, ethnicity, et cetera, tend to be the ones affected most by the crises that we looked at. And that was something that was pretty clear in the case studies we had. And so something that I thought was very important that we talk about in that article. No, that's a fair point. And I think that it's also something that came up and because of, I would say, because of our particular historical and cultural context today in 2020, 2021, whenever we wrote that article, I actually don't remember what exactly that happened. But I don't think it's it's the kind of question that would be asked, let's say, 40 years ago or 50 years ago, if people back then would have encountered a similar situation. Yeah, that's fair, right? I mean, everything is constrained, the questions you ask by what you're living through today. So that's a that's a fair point. Yeah, now, as we near wrapping up this episode, I had a question, Merle, based on an experience I had today, right? So earlier today, my brother just like dropped by with his son, who is about two years older than my daughter. And this was the first time my daughter had an older friend come visit her room. I mean, she's had like friends from her daycare, but then they just like ignore each other and like do their thing. So this was the first time an older kid showed up and she freaked out. She like melted down once he started touching her favorite toys. Yeah, I've never seen her do anything like that. So as the father with more experience, who has received a lot of credit on this podcast so far, Merle, I wanted to ask you as father to father, how do you deal with your kids melting down? I mean, I remember they used to melt down a lot. So the first thing I'll say is, it's actually quite funny that your daughter melted down because of someone else playing with her toys, which shows that she's an only child. So maybe you should rectify that, but you know, we'll leave that aside <laughs> for now. 
<laughs> but no, seriously. Um, it's a standard, actual, normal thing that happens, right? When there's only one kid and they're used to only one person with their toys, which is something that my kids fight over toys. That's for sure. But they have always been okay with other people playing with their toys because someone has always been playing with their toys. So it's actually an interesting social thing. So it's better to have twins. Is that your recommendation, your formal recommendation to the audience of this podcast? In this one case, yes. <laughs> I don't know if I would extrapolate for it long. But fair enough, fair enough. in terms of how you deal with a meltdown, I mean, there's many ways. You pull them from the situation and you try to talk to them calmly. I mean, at least it was at home, right? It's not like in a grocery store, say, where like then you're dealing with a screaming child in a grocery store and you have to like, you know, bring them outside or whatever. That's a much bigger hassle. But, you know, the number one thing, as I said, you pull them away. You have calm conversations. Your daughter, I think, is old enough that she can kind of understand what you're talking to her about. So I think you try to have, you know, calm conversations with them as much as you can and they'll never truly go away till they're much older but simple clear voice as much as you can is the way forward i think and obviously if the situation doesn't warrant it it becomes more difficult yeah no thanks a lot thanks for the advice i'll, I'll be sure to try to implement that next time that happens which again i'm pretty sure that will happen at some point and I guess that on this note of Merle dispensing some fatherly advice to us younger fathers or other people, maybe we can wrap up this episode. So we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, for funding us. And as usual, our team, so our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Verder Kanat. Until next time, stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and send us some advice for how you deal with screaming children. <laughs> <laughs>